The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your gods. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of, the, of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. Well, um, lovely to be with you all again. Um, and uh, exciting that this begins the series in Hosea, because it's basically one of my favorite books in the Bible. So, winning. Um, so much, in fact, so that I got the, a reference from it tattooed on my arm, like, ten years ago, because I love it that much. So... Um, and it is a really strange story, as I guess you'll probably already have gathered as we've listened just to that first chapter. But it's also one where the gospel shines through in a really surprising way. Um, but I think in order for us to be able to make sense of it, we probably need to begin with a little bit of historical context. Um, because um, if we want to kind of make sense of um, that fact that it's a strange story, it's also a true story. Um, and so it's one that takes place in, the, in like the lives of real people, in a real place, in a real time. And so we're going to just start by having a very quick Bible history lesson, um, which I hope will make, us make sense of where we are in the story of the Bible, but it will also hopefully make sense as you kind of continue to look at it over the next few weeks of some of the references that um, Hosea makes. Um, hopefully it will become clearer once we know where we are. Um, so most of the story of the Bible as you probably will know, is focused in on the nation of Israel. And uh, Israel begins with one couple, Abraham and Sarah. They're childless, and, and they're too old to hope that that will change. But God promises to give them a child and to build a nation through them um, and to give them a land to live in and um, to bring blessing to them um, and to the whole world through them. And what God promises, he always comes through on. And this promise is no exception to that. They have their son Isaac. He has a son Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. Joseph ends up as prime minister in Egypt. And when, when he's there, there is a famine in the country where the rest of the family are living. And so they move to Egypt too. Um, and they grow and they live. And they're there for several hundred years. And they're starting to look much more like the nation that God had promised they would be. Each of Jacob's sons has now become a tribe, but they still don't have their own land. And more seriously, they're now enslaved in Egypt. They're forced to do hard labor. 
um, their babies are being killed to try and halt the growth of the nation. And so God raises up a leader from amongst them, Moses, and after a series of miraculous plagues, the Pharaoh allows them to leave Egypt, and God leads them through the waters of the Red Sea and across the desert on their way to the promised land of what will become Israel. And yet, their repeated disobedience of God causes them to be delayed on that journey, and they're forced to wander in the desert for 40 years before they finally enter that land. As they do, God makes many, many more promises to them, promises of blessing if they keep trusting in him, but also promises of really severe consequences if they wander away from him. And unfortunately, almost immediately, they do wander away. They fail to keep God's law, they turn to worship other gods, and their treatment of one another becomes ever more brutal. They also reject God's rule over them. They demand that he give them a king because they want to be like the nations around them. And despite all of this, God continues to care for them. He gives them victory in battles. He even gives them a good king to rule over them as he appoints David, who is in turn followed by his son, Solomon. And yet, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes over, he does such a terrible job that the kingdom ends up being split in two. Ten of the tribes in Israel become one northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and that's led by a king called Jeroboam. The other two remaining tribes in the south become a kingdom called Judah. Both continue in their disobedience to God, but Israel does it much, much more quickly. Um, they, from the king down, they stop worshipping God, uh, they start worshipping false gods, they treat one another terribly, and they just turn away from God more and more. So by the time that Hosea gives his prophecy, it's a couple of hundred years later after the kingdom is split, the nation of Israel is in its very last days before these long-promised consequences come. And it's into this context that this book is written, as God, through the words of Hosea, his prophet, explains what is coming to Israel and why. So that's the kind of story so far. I'm sorry it was very quick. But hopefully that just gives a little bit of a picture of where we are um, and what's going on with that list of those names of kings in verse 1. That's the context. And then verse 2 gives the surprise of the story as we hear what kind of a prophet Hosea is being called to be. Normally, to be a prophet meant um, just speaking. It wasn't a fun job, certainly, because usually that speaking meant speaking really bad news to really powerful people. But Hosea is being asked to do something more than just that. He's not just being asked to speak a prophecy. He's also being asked to live out a prophecy. Look at verse 2. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. This idea of God as a faithful husband and of Israel as the unfaithful wife is one that appears again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, but it's the central image of Hosea. And God is so committed to the people understanding it that he's not content to merely say it. He wants it to be lived out so that they can see it as well. And this is where we've got to hold on to that reality that I spoke of earlier. This is not just a story. This is real this is not a parable. This really, really happened. God told a real man, Hosea, to marry a real adulterous woman, Gomer, and to have real children with her. 
And the focus of this chapter is on those children. We're going to look at each in turn. But before we do, I think we've got to just think a little bit about this woman, Gomer, and the words that are used to describe her. Um, in this um, uh, translation of the Bible that we have, the, world is, the word is translated as promiscuous or adultery. But other translations use a much cruder and crueler word, and they use the word whore. Um, and we're pretty troubled by that word, I would imagine, and for good reason. It's an ugly word, and it talks about an ugly thing. Selling your body, selling sex, is selling something that is supposed to be um, this wonderful gift that belongs within a faithful marriage. It's turning a precious gift of God into a commodity. But I think the other reason that we find that word troubling is because it um, brings up to mind the reality of prostitution and what that looks like for people who live with it um, today. Um, and that reality for people is quite different from the context of this story. Women and men who are engaged in sex work now do not do so out of choice. Um, where I live in London um, is the area where, with the most people working in the sex trade in the UK. And my church has a ministry that um, seeks to look out for those people and to look after them. Um, and I volunteer with them. And the sex workers who I meet up with have mainly been trafficked into the work. They've been handed over to it by men who've lied to them and tricked them and forced them into it to pay off huge debts to people traffickers. And those who have chosen the work have done so in order to escape abuse at home, often beginning in childhood, um, and or they've done that to pay for a drug habit. The stories that I've heard are really bleak, and there's no sense of a choice for any of them. But that is not what is going on in this story. This woman, Goma, is going to sell herself, but not because she has to, and not because she's forced to, but because she wants to. And that is one of the most grim things about this story, is her choice to do something that nobody would choose to do. Later in the story, we'll see the actions of both Goma and Israel described as prostitution, but it's worth just continuing to hold on to this different experience of what it means for them versus what it means for those caught up in that world today. So Hosea is commanded to marry her, and he does, and the implications of that are all going to be unpacked as the book unfolds. The realities of being married to someone who will and does betray Hosea is meant to show a small degree of the betrayal of God by his people. And that is going to be spelled out in detail in chapter one, but the focus of, sorry, the detail in chapter two, but the focus of chapter one is on the children that they have. And it's particularly on the names that those children have. So let's look at them in turn. Firstly, we get um, child number one. Um, so if you just have a look at verses four and five, this is what it says. Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So the name Jezreel literally just means God sows, um, sowing seed rather than sowing, you know, with a needle, um, just to clarify. Um, but for the hearers, the name would have meant something very different. Um, because it was the name of a valley where there had been a terrible massacre. The king at that time was a man named Jehu, and he killed well over 100 people in that valley. And in theory, it was as a sign of devotion to God, 
Um, some of those who were killed were enemies of God and his people. But the lengths to which Jehu went to destroy them and all that he did afterwards just suggests that it was less about his worship of God and more about him being bloodthirsty and hungry for power. And whatever the case, the name Jezreel would only have reminded people of that massacre. And so to call your son by that name was a strange and controversial choice. It was like naming a newborn, no, newborn baby 9-11 or Auschwitz. Like it's just horrific. It was a name that would have brought up awful memories and connotations. And then, of course, the name would have had to be explained. Um, well, we've named him that because God has promised to do the same thing to us as Jehu did to those people in that valley. I'm like, great, how lovely. Um, the promise to break their bow is a promise that all of their military might and defense is going to be destroyed. And so as a nation, they will cease to exist. It's a threat, and it is all bound up in the name of Hosea's brand new baby boy. It's really weird, but it is very hard to avoid. And then we have child number two. This time it's a daughter. And there's a little bit of ambiguity here. Things are not as clear as they might have been. With the first baby, Jezreel, the phrase in verse 3 says, Gomer conceived and bore Hosea a son. But with child number two, the phrase is, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Hosea has disappeared at this point. Now, it might just be a turn of phrase, but it might also suggest that the origins of this baby are a little bit more unclear. Maybe she is Hosea's daughter, maybe she isn't. It's unclear for us, and it probably would have been unclear for them, for Hosea and for Gomer as well. If she is not being faithful to Hosea, then this is the reality that they're all living with. They just don't know. But that isn't the worst thing that's going on, because again, the name is announced, and this time it is Lorachama, which sounds lovely, Unless you know Hebrew, which they all do, because in Hebrew it means not loved. Imagine giving that as a name to your baby girl. Um, more importantly, imagine growing up with that as your name. Again, this is a story about real people, a real child with a real name of not loved. And again, when the neighbors come to call and visit the new baby and inquire about the name, and try to disguise their horror at what has been chosen, Hosea would have had to explain the reason behind it. Well, she's called that because God has told us that he will no longer love or forgive Israel. After years of betrayal, he has finally had enough. His patience has run out, and he is pronouncing a certain judgment on them. There's still hope for Judah, that smaller southern kingdom. In verse 7, we see that he will keep loving them, and he will save them, but for Israel, the end has arrived. No more love, no more mercy, no more forgiveness. And little baby Lohohama is the constant reminder of that reality. And finally, child number three, another boy, another baby with the question of who the father is hanging in the air. And this one given an, an equally awful name, Loami. Again, sounds lovely until the meaning is given. This one means not my people, not mine. Imagine growing up with that name given to you, given to you by a man who isn't 100% sure whether you are his or not. But again, it's a name given by God as a sign for Israel. You are not my people, and I am not your God. 
This nation who back when they were rescued from slavery in Egypt were told again and again and again and again that he was their God and they were his treasured possession are now being told that reality is over. He is no longer their God and they are no longer his people. It is all over. It is a bleak and final pronouncement. It is a bleak and final truth. And it is being communicated through the names of three real children. The sin, the betrayal, the adultery, the prostitution of Israel against God has been so awful that he has had enough. And it's worth us just pausing there for a moment. Because sometimes I think we can be a bit casual when it comes to thinking about sin. We can imagine it's not really that serious that it isn't a big deal, that it isn't really hurting anyone. And yet this chapter and this book destroys that idea in a moment. Sin is not small or meaningless or insignificant. Sin is the worst kind of betrayal. It is taking the love and care and honor of the one who made us and knows us and offered us everything. And it is throwing that love and care and honor back in his face and giving our own devotion to something or someone cruel and small and powerless in his place. God's response to the sin of Israel makes that devastatingly clear. If they are going to abandon him in favor of another husband and another God, then he is going to let them. If they're going to look for life and hope and security and joy someplace else, then he is going to leave them to it. The problem is... He is the source of life and hope and security and joy. And so without him, they're left with nothing. It's bleak and it's sad and it's final. And then suddenly it's not. Suddenly, despite what felt like a final word of judgment, we get verse 10 opening with a tiny but beautiful word, yet. All seemed over and then this word yet arrives and it isn't. He had said that he would put an end to the house of Israel, but now he promises that the people of Israel will be like the sand on the seashore, too many to count. He had said, you are not my people, but he will call the same group children of the living God. How? Is God just changing his mind? Well, no, it's more that he is going to change all of reality. First, he's going to undo the division. The moment that had signaled an end of the great kingdom of Israel was when the nation split in two. And so God is going to reverse that and he's going to bring them back together. And that is great news for Israel because if they're part of Judah again, then what God has promised to Judah becomes true for them too. He had promised to keep loving and rescuing Judah and if they're united to Judah, then they will be bound up in that love and rescue too. Secondly, he's going to give them a new leader. One who will unite them and lead them together. One who will rescue them like they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're going to be rescued again and they're going to be led together by this promised ruler. And thirdly, he's going to reverse all of the names, starting with Jezreel. Jezreel, if you remember, meant God sows, but it had taken on that new meaning because of what happened in the valley. 
But God is going to do something so great for Israel that that bad memory will be forgotten and the name will mean something good again. It would be as if one day something amazing happens on a future September 11th. And so one day, 9-11 will no longer be a day that reminds us of grief, but instead reminds us of something wonderful and joyful. We can't really imagine that now, but this is the kind of picture that God is giving to them. People will stop wincing when they hear the word Jezreel, and instead they will smile. The meaning of Jezreel will change, but for Lo Ruchama and Lo Ami, their actual names are changed. Lo Ruchama becomes Ruchama, Lo Ami becomes Ami. Not loved is renamed loved. Not mine is renamed mine. What a relief for those children, and what a relief for those who knew them and were paying attention to what that meant. God was not going to abandon them after all. His love was not cut off. His possession of them was not at an end. And that is excellent news for us as well. As we come to realize the weight and the seriousness of our sin and what that means in terms of how we've betrayed and rejected and abandoned God, we're given the very, very good news that he will not betray or reject or abandon us. Just as he promised to rescue and restore Israel, he has promised the same for us. And unlike them, we know the true identity of that ruler who will lead the united Israel and Judah and us as well out of slavery. That ruler is Jesus. God himself who stepped into human history, who took Israel's place and who took our place as well. Jesus stepped into the valley of Jezreel in our place. Jesus was abandoned by God in our place. Jesus died in our place and then he walked through the valley of death and out the other side. And he leads Israel and Judah and us through as he goes. This is the message of the gospel and this is the message of Hosea, which is why I love it so much and which is why I got it tattooed on my arm. Our sin is great, but God's mercy and love and forgiveness is so much greater. So brothers and sisters, keep hold of him. Keep trusting in his forgiveness of you and have confidence that he will never let you go. This is the story. As you go through Hosea, there's going to be moments when it gets pretty bleak. But this is one of the things I love about this book, that it begins with the whole story in some ways. So you know already what the ending's going to be. And that's the beauty of where we stand in God's story as well, that we already know how it's going to end. We know what Jesus has done. We know what lies ahead for us. And so we can put our trust and our hope in him. And we can read even this bad news, knowing what is coming, knowing the good news at the end. So feel the weight of the sin, but know that his mercy, his forgiveness, his love is deeper and stronger and bigger. Um, and keep holding on to him. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to hand back. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of the gospel that the Lord Jesus um, was cut off and abandoned and um, went through death for us in order that we might not be, in order that we might have life with you. And so, Father, pray for us that you would help us to keep hold of that good news, that truth this week, 
I pray for these guys as they continue to um, know your word and know your gospel through the book of Hosea, that you would help them to see that more and more, that you would um, show them the depth of their sin, um, but the even greater depth of your love and your mercy um, and your grace in the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.